and I remember um, one of the physician colleagues who I, I still am very good friends with said to me, you know, you can take people that have 20 years of experience that can't critically think. You can take people who have lots and lots of accolades, but the real test of whether or not you're good at what you're doing is, are you calm and cool under pressure? Can you connect with others? That is far more important. So I stopped comparing myself to comparing myself so to the other nurse practitioners that had so much more clinical experience before they had become an MP. I didn't. I did a program where I'd only been a nurse for about three years. Um, and so it was really interesting to me that as soon as I made that switch in my brain, I was like, I am good at this and I'm going to be an incredible NP because I have things that other people don't have. Hey mamas, welcome to the Being Mother Hustler podcast. I'm your host, Mother Hustler, Kareen Mills. I'm a mama of two boys, founder of a tribe called Mother Hustler Nation, co-founder of the Game Changers Global Network, an insurance professional turned lifestyle entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author. Each and every week, I'm bringing you stories and thoughts from mom entrepreneurs who will inspire you to take massive, imperfect action, unapologetically chase your dreams, and eradicate your excuses so you can quit treating your business like a hobby and turn your side hustle into full-time income. I know being mother hustler is not easy. But sisters, we are making it happen, even in this beautiful mess. Thank you so much for being present with me today. Now let's go mother the world. Cynthia Thurlow is a Western medicine trained nurse practitioner. She's a two-time TEDx speaker with her latest talk, about intermittent fasting going viral. She's an entrepreneur, nutritionist, author, and co-host of Everyday Wellness Podcast. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and her two boys, and of course, their two crazy doodles. She's passionate about intermittent fasting and spreading the word that food is as important if not more important than any other lifestyle choice. She empowers her clients to see the inherent power of food and nutrition as their greatest assets to their health and wellness journeys. She works one-on-one with female clients and also in a group setting through her signature program, Holistic Blueprint. Her niche is female hormonal health and healthy aging. Mother Hustlers, please help me in welcoming the Mother Hustler, mothering the world, this week, intermittent fasting expert, nurse practitioner, two-time TEDx speaker, a good friend of mine and fellow Mother Hustler, Cynthia Thurlow. Welcome back, everybody. This is Kareen Mills, your podcast host, and you are listening to the Being Mother Hustler podcast. 
We are so excited today because we have my good friend, Cynthia, who's going to be here to talk to us about intermittent fasting. Uh-oh. And one of her video, her TEDx talk, yeah. has gone viral. And I can't wait to share it with you on all over social media. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for that nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. And for you, it's morning. For me, it's afternoon, but I'm glad we were able to coordinate our schedules. I know. It's been like the latest interview that I did, it took us about eight months to actually get to it. So, wow. so you're way ahead of the ball game. <laughs> <laughs> Only because, you know, we're mother hustlers and, you know, you put two mother hustlers schedule together and try to coordinate that. It's almost impossible, but we never give up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think that's really the name of the game that, you know, that tenacity, you know, being a mom, it's, I, I always say I'm a total badass. I can do anything. If I can be a mom, I can be anything. So absolutely. I feel like if you're already a mom, you're already a badass. Yeah. And no, I mean, badass. thinking about all the things you juggle in your day, uh, you know, I have a, a good friend who really wants to be a mom, but hasn't met the right person. And so she was saying to me, because she's in her 40s, she said, I'm not sure I can do this thing. Because she said, mm -hmm. I look at how selfless moms are. And I said, you know, what's crazy is that I'm sure before I had children, I might have had that thought fleetingly. Mm -hmm. But now that I have kids, it's like, it's this beautiful balance. Like once you get your groove on, once you kind of figure out, you know, how to do the diapering, how to do the napping, how to do the breastfeeding, or however you decide to, to feed your children when they're infants, once you get that down and then you kind of, you know, can go to the store and, and do all of those things, then you just have, you're just infinitely confident. It's like, I can do anything. If I can grow a human, feed a human, raise a human, I can do anything. So. Yes. And it definitely starts in like the birthing process because mm -hmm. that's like our scare, you know, first child. Yeah. And, and the birthing process. And even if adopt, you're adopting, mm -hmm. like it's still like giving birth, right? Yeah. It's, it may not be as painful, but the anxiety that you go through, I Absolutely. think it's going to be similar. Yeah. And because you don't know how you're going to, how am I going to go to work with an infant at home? <laughs> yeah. No. I, and I, those are the kinds of things I was saying to someone the other day. Um, you know, obviously I, I went back, I, I, I no longer worked full-time as, as a nurse practitioner, but I went back part-time and I work for a very, very demanding high acuity practice. Uh, I did cardiology for 16 years. And I, remember I went back to work and my options were to pump or to eat. Huh. And so that full first year of my son's life, because I breastfed him for a whole year, um, I walked around this and it disgusts me to even think about this, but I would pump um, like three times during the course of my, my uh, hospital time. And I would eat protein bars because that's all I had time for. I could like pump and eat a protein bar or drink water. Um, and of course, it was easy for me to lose the baby weight because I wasn't eating enough calories. And, and as you know, like breastfeeding, you could eat like a linebacker, you could eat anything. Uh, and I always explain to people, I'm like, looking back retrospectively, I would have advocated for more for myself and said to the male physicians I was working with, this is bullshit. I'm going to take time to eat a proper meal. I'm not going to have a phone, have a pager, be breastfeed, be pumping, try and eat a protein bar and think that I can take care of myself as well as patients. So. Just, it's amazing how that your life kind of comes full circle. You start to realize you're like, I would do things a little differently. But. Yeah, I was just um, thinking back about when I was transitioning into the first mother that I was, first time mom. And we, um, you know, 
circling back into the health and fitness and the um, the lifestyle change mm-hmm. and and the and healthy lifestyle change mm-hmm. and an unhealthy lifestyle change. You talked about the anxiety of how am I going to get it all done if I become a mother? Because I see a lot of mothers that is doing the things that they're doing and they're, I mean, from the outside, we look, we look like we have it all together, mm-hmm. but you know, for a fact that we don't, yeah. but um, for people that don't have kids yet, it, it's, it amazes them. Like my, my sister right now is, is pregnant and due my little oh, sister exciting. and she's due in, let's see, October. And she's, she's always said to me, like, I want to become the mom like you, like you're oh. just so amazing. And I'm like, wow, thank you. Like I don't have it all together, yeah. but yes, thank you. Because it's amazing to watch for them you know, Absolutely. that we can do all the things. But when I started to be a mom, I truly, you know how you said, like, when you get it all in the groove together and you, you figure out the diapers and the scheduling on naps and feeding. But in the beginning, when you don't figure it out, you forget about yourself. And I literally just let go of myself. Yeah. I don't know about you, if you did that for you, but mm-hmm. for me, speaking for myself, I think that's a huge um, I don't know, a huge mistake for most moms to just let go because they're so overwhelmed with the new scheduling and we just forget about ourselves. So I actually was so unhealthy. I was eating wrong. I was, I was switching and I've always been working out, but not always, I've never figured out my diet because I grew up in the Philippines and we okay. ate a ton of fried food, a ton of rice, a ton of like, I mean, we ate a ton of vegetables, but we ate a ton of non-healthy stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I became a first mom, and I think this might be a message that you and I can send to first moms, first time moms, is that I literally just let it go and gain even more weight, you know? And And then I I woke up after my second child and I'm like, I think the mindset too of like, okay, I'm having another one, so therefore I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really common. I mean, I, I, when I look at my close girlfriends, I think it runs the gamut, you know, from one extreme to the other, either people who were paranoid to gain a pound, and I had friends like that. And then I had friends who totally kind of let, let when I say the term let themselves go, they were so focused on being a mom that they weren't doing any self-care. They felt guilty, you know, taking care of themselves. And I was probably in the middle. I mean, I, I recognized that by the time... Jack was was a year old. Um, I had been breastfeeding for a solid year, almost exclusively. And I just remember feeling like my mom came to visit and I've always been someone who enjoys putting makeup on and I like getting dressed up for my husband or even for myself. I like, you know, doing fun things and I wasn't doing any of that. I felt like I was so focused on being a mom and going to work. And my husband did a lot of international travel. So I was really, really essentially a single parent. And my husband's dad five weeks after my son was born, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. So we had this other layer of complexity and my husband was in graduate school. So it was like all these things. And I loved, you know, just Jack and I doing our thing, but my mom would come to visit and she was like, when's the last time you did anything to your hair? When's the last time you, you know, wore something that wasn't something you could just throw it? Cause I think I, it was the time those velour like jumpsuits were really in. I'm embarrassed yeah. to even get that. And so I would like just, you know, change out my top or, wear yoga pants all day long. My mom was like, you need to like kind of put some, 
pride in your appearance and take care of you. And um, my mom really pushed me, and for which I am grateful, really pushed me to um, remember that I'm still an individual. Like even though I'm a mom, wow. even though I'm a wife, I'm still an individual. And so I'm grateful that she did that. But I, but I do, and I still to this day, even with having a tween and a teen, um, I still see moms who struggle with this as well. So uh, I think it's normal and I think it's highly unusual. Um, and I don't think a lot of the images that we see either on social media or in print ads or on TV or in movies are really great role models for women. You know, I'm thinking, of, you know, the, um, the social media superstars who, you know, have a baby and then like three weeks later, they're back to their normal oh size. Oh God. That's Tell such a, <laughs> yeah. So those kinds of images I think can be really detrimental, but I agree with you that, you know, uh, the seasoned veteran moms need to share these things so that other moms recognize that it's normal to kind of go through this process. Yeah. And, and, you know, coming from a nurse practitioner Mm -hmm. who is so qualified to say that is, is so like, it's so peaceful Mm -hmm. type thing. You know, it's like, ah, thank you for saying that's normal. Yeah. Well, and I think, unfortunately, I think women are also conditioned to not talk about certain things. We, whether it's pride, whether it's feeling like we're going to let people down. I, I just think we as women need to do a better job of having those open, honest discourse with one another. Um, you know, I did a, a social media post yesterday, really kind of reflexively, because someone, it was trending on Twitter, according to one of my friends. So people were asking how old I was. And I'm very transparent. I'm 47. And so um, I, I just said, I don't know why people want to make age and issue for women. It's, it's yeah. somehow women turn a certain age, whether it's 35, 40 or, or older, that all of a sudden they don't want to talk about their age. They're ashamed of their age. They don't feel comfortable um, sharing that somehow they'll be less likable. And so yeah. that was, that was the whole post was what's interesting about me are these things. And what's not interesting about me is that I'm 47. And so let's like, let's make it about substantive stuff and not things that I perceive are kind of like stupid stuff. It's like saying, it's like saying, you know, are you male or female? Well, I'm a female. So why make it an issue? It is what it is. You know, my age is what it is. Um, But I think that um, especially women that are kind of coming of age, you know, women that are at the stage of life that I'm in, we need to make other women know that it's totally cool and totally comfortable to be in your forties and still be successful and feel good in your skin. And you know, receive the love that you're looking for from your loved ones and be, you know, be successful in your business or how, whatever your occupation is. And there should be no shame. I just think there's this whole shame culture of God forbid, you know, someone tells me how old they are. Like the woman that tells me I'm 29 for the 20th time. And I'm like, really, why don't you (laughs) own your age? Like just own it. I a hundred percent agree. First of all, for 47, you look amazing. Thank you. And Again, we don't want to label those, but I just want to acknowledge that you do. And I posted something because I turned 40 this month, mm-hmm. right? And when I turned 40, like everybody was like, oh my gosh, the big four O. Oh my gosh. And my husband teased me like, ooh, coming in hot at 40. <laughs> <laughs> Say that's you right. Know? That's when it starts hurting. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hurting for you because you don't stretch and you don't, eat, <laughs> you know, and you don't eat healthy. So, yeah. hey, I feel it. In- the day of my birthday is like, how does it feel to, to be 40? I said, feels the same as 20. Mm-hmm. It feels the same as 25. Yeah. I'm sure it'll probably feel like the only difference is I have more wisdom 
mm-hmm. and I am more in tune with who I am and I know exactly who I want to become and who I am and I'm not ashamed of it. Yeah. The only difference is that I know what matters in this mm-hmm. world and what matters in this world now that I know better is not the same as what I thought mattered when I was 20. Yeah. And I, I, I posted something about like winning and truly winning because in my early age, you know, winning was being successful with a big house, with the nice cars, with all these things. And I said something about truly winning and is when you are giving so much value in the world and you're celebrated because of it. Mm -hmm. That's what truly meaning, you know, winning really means. And if that's what it means to turn 40, I, and older, I said, I'll get older every single day and I have yeah. no problem with it. Yeah, Don't you agree? I do. And I think that's such a refreshing perspective. I, I think I just wasn't raised with the limiting beliefs that age means anything. And so, uh, you know, for me, I, I know a lot of people really struggle. And, and I suspect the people who really struggle with a chronologic age are people that maybe aren't in a happy place in their lives. And so maybe being a year older is more frightening um, you know, I, I have to giggle because my husband who does not look his age, uh, has a big birthday, uh, and it's not 40, he's uh, going to turn 50 in September. And so, you know, we've been trying to figure out a way to celebrate him. And I just said, I want to just continue being an example, not only to our children, but to other individuals that it's not like North of 35, your life just suddenly you fall off a cliff. Um, and I certainly speak to, you know, thousands of people who kind of echo those sentence, sentiments. So I think the people that fear age are the ones who are really in this discontented period in their lives. They're unhappy, they're unfulfilled. And I always say, you can always change that. You know, we have the power to make that, to change that. So I always kind of suggest that people really look inward, like, what do you really want? What do you really desire? What's really important to you? And I think it's, really critical. You know, you mentioned that materialism when we're younger, we think having things are going to make us happy. And yet I live in a, I live in the Washington DC suburbs. I live in a pretty affluent area and I see people who have everything materialistically and look miserable. So I, you know, I just, like I mentioned to my children, I'm like, you know, for us experiences are what we invest money in. So taking them on vacations fun vacations, educational vacations, cultural vacations are really our priority. And yet um, I think they now are starting to appreciate that because it's a way to connect as a family and didn't mean for this to get off tangentially, but I think, um, you know, a true sense of passion and fulfillment for uh, things in your life is a far greater lesson than just having material goods because you can always get a bigger house. You can always get a more expensive car. You can always have a more expensive purse but that doesn't, that doesn't fill your cup. I mean, that has to come from other things. And, and like you mentioned, um, making an impact on the world, you know, really impacting people's lives, really having a message that resonates, providing hope when people are, are feeling you know, unhappy or uh, hesitant or um, feeling like there's not a good voice that represents who they are and where they are, that's far yeah. more impactful. Yeah, I I so resonate with you and I echo everything you're saying. You talk about you were raised, you know, to never put like a stigma on age. Now tell me, how is your... Can you hear me good? 
Oh, there was just like a, a little hesitation. Sorry. <laughs> You're saying, tell me. And that's, that's all I got. Tell me how, how was your childhood when uh, you were growing up? Was it fun, challenging? Uh, challenging. Um, so I have two very, very intelligent, successful parents who had a very unhappy marriage. Um, two individuals who um, came together with good intentions and were not good together at all. So my parents were divorced when I was seven my father, I suspect, is on the Asperger syndrome, so very intelligent, not a, not a really good communicator, not good with social cues. My father was very verbally abusive, oftentimes physically abusive growing up. So when my parents got divorced, I remembered at seven being relieved that he was leaving our house. Um, he was also an alcoholic, still is an alcoholic. And my mom um, was a single mom for many years, worked very hard. She was a nurse. And um, I know she gave up a lot so that my brother and I could have the basics. And, you know, the thing that I'm most grateful for is that my extended family, my father's family and my mom's very matriarchal families on both sides, women who stepped up, you know, my grandmothers, my aunts to kind of fill the void of things that my parents weren't able to do for us. And so my mom got remarried when I was 12, married a very nice man. Um, he had three children. My mom had two. So it was kind of like the Brady Bunch for a few years. Um, but my step siblings were very, very different than my brother and I are and were. And um, it was kind of a chaotic few years. And then I went off to college. But before I went off to college, um, you know, I, I always say that, you know, God gives you the things you need. And so not only did I have a great extended family, I also had wonderful girlfriends and have my entire life. So they filled in the gaps, but I, I wouldn't describe my childhood as, um, as easy or privileged. And I think people make the assumption that it was. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that my parents provided me with a wrong, a, a very strong sense of education, you know, being, you know, educating yourself, reading cultural things, were really a high priority of them. Um, my mom was very open-minded, and so I, I was raised to be very open-minded and non-judgmental. And then went off to college, and and I feel like that's kind of when I kind of to figure figured out where I belonged in the world. Um, so when I look back on my childhood, the joyful moments are really spent with my family. Mm. Uh, my brother and I are very close. He actually lives in Washington D.C. with his family as well. And I, I look at us as survivors. I think when you grow up with um, emotional and physical abuse, yes. that you know it's a decision. It's a decision every day to not recreate what I grew up in. It's a decision every day to be a better person than um, what I grew up with. And you know, my mom um, and I have a have a nice relationship. My dad and I have a strained relationship, and I'm very respectful of him. But I don't. Um, I someone asked me the other day, "What did my father teach me?" And I said, okay, my first, my first response would be not to marry someone like him. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, cause I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. And I said, my second response was a strong sense of the value of, of education, a passion for reading and a desire to further myself from, from where I grew up. So I always say that, you know, we take the things we're given, you know, I, I, I whether you have a spiritual sense or, or you have a strong relationship with God, I, I just feel that the only way I'd be where I am today is because of what I went through as a child. And, and my boys who don't understand this adequately enough, and I hope that they never do, I tell them all the time, I love you. I'm your biggest cheerleader. I'm going to be there for you for 
for whatever you need me to be there for. Um, my husband and I have a very loving relationship. You know, we've been together for 17 years, married for almost 16. It's a very calm household. I mean, even though I have boys, I mean, you understand you have boys. Yes. Um, it's not, it's not a drama filled relationship. Uh-huh. Um, my, my kids create a little bit of drama cause they're at the ages where they're starting to question mm-hmm. everything and push back, but it's a very different environment than I grew up in. And, and that for me is a triumph. You know, my parents were only married for 11 years. Um, my mom's been married three times. My dad has been married twice. And so for me, it was a huge, um, and it was a, it was a kind of very unsettling milestone when we hit 11 years. And I said to, to Todd, my husband, I was like, wow, I know your parents were married for like 35 years, which I think is amazing. But for me, like being a child of divorce to have that opportunity to make it to 11 years and be in a happy marriage and, and love you and, and know that you love me. And this is a very safe place for us to be is, is a huge, huge achievement in my mind. Um, so yeah, that, that's my childhood. I would say that challenging, not privileged, definitely the antithesis. People, I think, make assumptions based on how I live my life now, um, but my life has come full circle. And so for that, I'm very, very grateful, but it's been an effort. It's you know, many years of therapy, talking about things, being very open about what needs to happen, what needs not to happen in our lives, and just being respectful of my spouse. I think... Um, you know, when you grow up with parents that are verbally abusive, not only of you, but of one another, you just learn like, I don't want that dialogue. I don't want that kind of dynamic. I don't want that kind of relationship because that will be very destructive for me. So. Yeah. Not only for you personally, but also as your kids are growing up. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the environment that you grew up in and, and you create that. I like to call a, um, incubator for your kids, Mm -hmm. you know, that's essentially home is their incubator for their adult life. And if we show those things, and for me, I have a similar, you know, childhood like you, the thing that my father had taught me was the same, you know, they, they, every single one of us have a purpose in this life. And my father served his purpose. Mm -hmm. He's still around. He lives in the Philippines. And his purpose was to make sure we don't end up with a husband like him, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that was really my, my goal when it came to finding, you know, settling with a man that I wasn't going to settle with a man like my father. Yeah. And I mean, I have a lot of anger when I was a teenager because it gets escalated, like the emotional feeling. Sure. When you're a child, you have no voice, Right. Yeah. When you become you a teenager, you start finding that you do have a voice mm-hmm. and you start going against what you see that's so wrong. Yeah. And and like you, I've been healing, but in, in our culture, we don't have such a thing as um, therapy. Okay. So our therapy, and there's not even like us siblings or six of us growing up in this situation. We don't even have a therapy session with each other you know, like conversations, but now we're like starting to, we love each other because we only had each other. Yeah. And no matter how far we live from each other, my brother lives in England. My sister lives in LA. My other sister and brother lives in the Philippines. Like we are constantly communicating every single day. And one day we were communicating about like when our spouses start screaming and changing their tone of voice, we just like crawl up like little girls. Yeah, you shut down. Yeah, because you go back to that Mm -hmm. environment you were in. And I thought I was the only one that was like that until I started 
being open about it with my sisters and you know it's hard for us to be vulnerable with our family in our culture i don't know maybe that's the same way with your culture and so as we became older we started being vulnerable and with my own spiritual journey i'm like i'm okay with it and then once i i was vulnerable that i essentially gave them permission to be vulnerable yeah. and and we started talking about like wow we all have the same reaction because we all grew up the same way mm-hmm. so I want to talk about your mom and because you're very close, obviously, to your mom. Now, what kind of lessons, and you talk about the lessons from your father, and Tony Robbins says that if we are going to blame our, our parents with the bad things that they did to us, we should blame them for the good things that yeah. they also did for us. Absolutely. So, so what kind of good things did your mom teach you? Yeah, I mean, another thing about education, um, education was really important. My mother was very big on always remaining a lady that, uh, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and and let's be frank, growing up in the 80s in New Jersey, there was a lot of very unladylike behavior that I was witness <laughs> to. Uh, and yeah. so my mom used to always remind me that you always want to keep your dignity as a, as a lady. And she didn't mean to be prude. Uh, she just meant to be respectful of yourself and of others. Um, you know, she was, she's an exceedingly successful person. Um, and so, uh, you know, she taught me an appreciation for finer things. You know, she got more financially successful after I was out of the house. And I'm very, very proud of all the things that she's accomplished. But she's tenacious. She is just one of the most tenacious go, 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 go kind of people I've ever met in my entire life. So that strong work ethic has really been embedded in me that it's, it's not okay to say you can't get it done, um, you know, within, within the confines of what's realistic for you and your lifestyle. Right. But that tenacity, that grit, that, um, you know, desire for excellence, my mom really embedded in me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're very, very different people. Um, you know, I, I always say like, I look like my father, but I'm a good blend personality wise of both of them as I, my brother would probably agree with that as well. He looks more like my mom. Um, but yeah, it, I think that, you know, the Tony Robbins saying is so accurate because our parents do the best that they can, you know, the yes. more I understand about my parents upbringing, the more I understand and I can rationalize their own behaviors. They did the best they could. And I was grateful. I had food. I had food every night. I had shelter. I had a home to go home. I had a place to go home to. Um, I know not so much my dad, but my mom. I knew that, you know, when I was, you know, everyone has struggles in college and, you know, after college, but, you know, I knew that my mom would always be there to talk to and and be support and to support me. And so a lot of people don't even grow up with those things. Um, And the other thing that, that I, my mother really invested in me is the value of family. And so that's why, you know, this, my, my, my grandfather was Italian. My grandmother was German and Irish. And so, um, I spent a lot of my summers with my grandparents in Colorado. And so a tremendous sense of family. So I'm very close with my cousins, very close with my aunts. Um, and you know, that's, that's a huge gift. I, you know, my, I married into a, a lovely family, but they don't, they don't, they're not as they're very, the nuclear family is their focus and not the extended family. So, um, right. I always say that for me, it, it's, it's strange to go visit a place where my husband's family is from and I don't see all of his aunts and uncles, but they're just not that way. Whereas Italians are all about connection and food. Yes. And, and those are the things that have really been, you know, kind of embedded in me. 
And I hope that, you know, we can kind of create those same experiences. Although my family and my brother's families are much smaller, we each only had two kids. Um, but I hope that my kids will have the same kind of, you know, connection with family, how important family is, you know, family by blood. Um, but obviously you're really lucky if you have family members you really like, and I've been really, really blessed. Like this past weekend, I was in Michigan. That's where my mom is, my stepfather and, and many of my cousins and, and one of my favorite people in the world, my aunt Carol, who's like a second mom to me. And so I got to see all these people and I, you know, I was thinking to myself on Sunday, I am so lucky. I'm just so fortunate because not everyone gets to have um, wow. you know, these blessings. So anyway, that's, that's the, the point I wanted to make that I think it's really significant if your and parents can embed in you some of the values that you then pass along to your children. Yeah. My, um, so everybody that gets married t- to my family, because I'm sort of like, we have the same values as Italian families. Mm-hmm. We gather around food. Food is the center of the, of, yeah. of any kind of party. Mm-hmm. And it's not just food, but exorbitant amount of food. Yep. Oh yeah. That's the Italian thing too. <laughs> breakfast, lunch, dinner. And then when everybody goes home after dinner, we send them food yep. to home. Yep. So it's very like that. And a lot of drinking mm-hmm. around food. Um, so that's kind of how we are. And so the people that get married to our family tends to gravitate to our family more mm-hmm. because they see that camaraderie mm-hmm. within the unit. And mm-hmm. like you said, your husband's family is not like that. They're close, but they're not like on top of each other. No. Like my family they're, is like that. Yeah. They're very waspy. You know, it's all about like my family will, I mean, and my husband, who's a very affectionate guy, it completely freaked him out the first time he met many mm-hmm. of my female families who kissed him on the lips. He was like, whoa, I'm not oh. used to that. I said, well, they're just very, I mean, and it wasn't inappropriate. It was right. just, they're very huggy. They're very affectionate. And so, you know, his very waspy family, it's like, you know, one of those very kind of obligatory hugs. It's like, don't uh-huh. touch me too much. And they're lovely people. It's just, you know, a waspy kind of perspective is that everything yeah. is prim and proper and everything that's in place, you don't yell at one another. Um, so it, it's interesting how we all grew up in different environments. And somehow Todd has kind of accepted that, you know, our house is a good blend of both. Um, good. But yeah. But I, I can, I can appreciate you know, Filipino culture, if it's a lot like uh, an Italian culture, because yes, the food piece, there's always too much food. You can never have enough food. Everyone yeah. goes home with doggy bags. Yes. Uh-huh. I completely Very understand. Very Catholic. That. I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. You too. know, it's, it's that, it's that religion too. It's, um, you know, with, with that culture, very Catholic countries. So why, and then you mentioned your mom is a nurse or was, yep. she's still a nurse. No, she ended up, uh, when she retired, she was CIO of a huge medical system. So she went from being a nurse to going into informatics and then kind of hit it at the right time and ended up at one of the big, at the time, one of the big seven wow. firms. And then, you know, it was at University of Pennsylvania and Case Western and Henry Ford. And so she became incredibly successful. I mean, she had no time for herself, but I wow. think, you know, we left the house and she needed another hobby. And so yeah. that became her focus. Good for her. Yeah. She is a mother hustler too. Yeah. Oh, she, <laughs> and she's very much, you think about it. She grew up in, you know, she was born in the forties, grew up in the fifties and sixties. And so that feminist kind of ideology really resonated with her. I would not describe myself as a feminist. I mean, I'm, I'm very pro-female and all of that, but um, you know, she 
she, she's a badass. She definitely <laughs> is a badass. I always say like, you need to tone it down, mom. Like just everyone in the Midwest is very nice. You just got to tone it down a little bit. Everyone here is super nice. Just tone it down. So, <laughs> so why nurse practitioner for you? Did you kind of get the wind from your mom with that? And- no, no. Um, it's funny. So when I went to undergrad, I was going to go to law school, got into law school. Um, Me too. Yeah. And one of the best decisions I ever made was not going to law school. I started Me looking too. at how much debt I was going to be in because Washington DC law schools are super expensive. And then I was looking at starting salaries and I'm like, mm, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And my parents were devastated because they're very achievement oriented. They're the kind of parents that when I was an undergrad, it was like, where are you going to grad school? My whole family's like yep. that, very achievement oriented. And, um, it's crazy. I'd always wanted a dog and I got a dog right when I got out of college and getting a dog changed my life in a wonderful way. I suddenly became very interested initially in veterinary medicine, but then I have terrible allergies. So that wasn't a a feasible choice. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school and took two years of pre-med classes and then was trying to decide between, you know, did I want to go to med school? Did I want to do like, did I want to become a PA? And then I had a professor who walked up to me one day and said, what the hell are you doing in this class? It was like a pharmacology class. And I explained it and he said, you need to become a nurse practitioner. And I was like, a what? I was like, I can't be a nurse. Like everyone, like both my grandmother, several of my aunts, my mother, I'd never even thought about going into medicine. And it was the best decision I could have ever made. I actually applied at the time I was really interested in HIV research and I was doing HIV counseling at a a clinic in Washington, DC called Whitman Walker. Mm-hmm. And um, my decisions were between two big schools, UCSF and Hopkins. And wow. um, I was like, if I get into Hopkins, I'm going to go. And so I did. And I was accepted into a, a so here's the, the backstory. If you want to become a nurse, you need an undergraduate degree in nursing. So I had to get a, another bachelor's. And then I went on and at the time, the end degree for a nurse practitioner was a master. So I was accepted into a dual program. And it was the first time in my adult life that I was surrounded by women that were as passionate about learning as I was. It was, and and these women are still some of my closest girlfriends. I get chills just thinking about it. That's how pivotal and crucial this decision was for me. I always call it one of my first left turns. And so I moved to Baltimore, which at the time was a total, pardon me, shithole. (laughs) Um, really was not nice at a highest rate of, of gun violence, highest rate of syphilis, teen pregnancy. I mean, yes. HIV infection, it was just not a, a nice place to be, but it was the best place I could have ever been. And so I was a sponge. I soaked everything up. I became an ER nurse. I went on to graduate school. I became a nurse practitioner. Um, and I know that's what I was meant to do. And there was no question that that How was- How did you know that? Because I was really good at it. Did you feel really? so at home when you, yeah. when you were surrounded with those women? Yeah. I mean, for wow. me, it was the intellectual stimulation. It was the camaraderie. It was the rigor. Medicine is a very demanding environment to work mm-hmm. in. Things change. They're not always predictable. I, could, I, could, I have the personality that I thrive on the chaos. So I loved sick patients. Me you get too. me in the ER, I loved it. You get me in the ICU, I loved it. And so that's why I thrived in cardiology as an NP. Um, but I think my real gift in life is my ability to connect with others. And so one of the things that was apparent to me, and and it's very hard when you're new at anything, we all have imposter syndrome. So whether it was when I was a new ER nurse or when I was working in cardiology as an NP, you go through a solid year or two feeling stupid, even though clearly you're not, you're clearly capable. And I remember, um, one of the physician colleagues who I, I still am very good friends with said to me, you know, you can take people that have 20 years of experience that can't critically think, 
You can take people who have lots and lots of accolades, but the real test of whether or not you're good at what you're doing is, are you calm and cool under pressure? Can you connect with others? That is far more important. So I stopped comparing myself to comparing myself so to the other nurse practitioners that had so much more clinical experience before they had become an NP. I didn't. I did a program where I'd only been a nurse for about three years. Um, and so it was really interesting to me that as soon as I made that switch in my brain, I was like, I am good at this and I'm going to be an incredible NP because I have things that other people don't have. What I don't have mm -hmm. in terms of um, years of experience as a nurse, I have so many other things that'll be beneficial. So that was my, that was a big turning point for me. Um, and I still identify as a nurse practitioner. I feel like I still use those qualities every day, although I left clinical medicine three years ago. Um, but there's not a second of any day that I regret that decision. It was the best decision I could have ever made at that time in my life. I always say there were two big left turns that I made in my life. They were the right turns for me, but they were not what most of my peers were doing. And that was the first one uh, for sure. Um, and I don't, you know, it's interesting how I just took this leap of faith. I was like, I didn't know if I was going to be any good at this. I took out huge loans to go to school, um, moved to a new city, dragged my little dog with me. Um, and you know, it was, it was clearly a pivotal, pivotal decision in my life and, and clearly the right one for me. I think that, um, what makes a difference though, is someone telling you like your, your, um, physician coworker mm -hmm. colleague planting the seed of in our mind, because it's all about mindset. You know, yep. I, I look back in every career that I've ever had. Like you said, you have doubts for yourself. You, am I good enough? Am I doing this right? And you know, there's someone in here that has an MBA or mm -hmm. something because I've always been in the business arena, whether I yeah. work for somebody or not. And and then here comes Kareen rolling in. Um, you know, I got my degree in the Philippines, so I have that comparison. Mm -hmm syndrome as well when I was early on um, in my career where I wasn't confident enough. Mm -hmm. And when somebody tells you that you're different, mm -hmm. it makes a difference when someone believes in you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I remember when I rolled into this um, interview and I was interviewing um, when I was in banking for a vice president commercial loan officer position. And I've had my degree for a long time by this point. And I go into this office to interview with the SVP in the bank. And he had so many piles of resume. Mm -hmm. And I walk in and, and he didn't even talk about work. Like he drilled me about something else. And mm -hmm. I was really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And like you, I'm such a connector. I love mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And I can have a conversation all day long. But when it comes to my work, I doubt myself, you know, yeah. like, but then I just roll, roll with a punch. And so he was like, you know, you see this stack of resume. They have a lot of these people have MBAs, but you have the experience. You don't have an MBA, but you have a degree. Mm -hmm. And what I'm looking for is someone that can swim a rough water and someone that can connect with people and just has a natural knack to connect with people. Mm -hmm. I don't need an MBA for that. That's and awesome. so, and so like every time I have doubts, when somebody tells me otherwise, 
it makes a difference. So having a leader around you too, and a mentor that tells you, look, this is what you have that those people don't have. Yeah. This is what makes you special and unique. And I think, you know, that's so critical, but I, I agree with you. And I think imposter syndrome, this is another thing people don't talk about. Imposter syndrome is common. Um, it's so common. I mean, there are key times in my life where I recall, um, just feeling like inadequate and it wasn't anyone doing that to me. It was me feeling like I'm stepping up my game. I'm doing what other people are not doing. I'm doing something different. Um, something that is maybe a little bit more courageous than, um, some of my other people that are kind of playing a little bit more safe. And it's, I don't say that to be judgmental. I'm just saying, um, the road less traveled in many ways is how I've lived my life. So. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's having the courage and the confidence that even if you know, some, some people might be judging your actions Mm -hmm. that you're okay with that and that you're confident that you're making the right decision because in your gut feeling you, it's so hard to talk to, by the way, to someone that has medical background and talk no. about gut feeling. <laughs> no, 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 but think about it. Your gut is your enteric second brain. So when people say my intuition, I just, I couldn't really, I couldn't tangibly say what it was, but they got butterflies or something didn't feel right. And I always say, that's your enteric brain. I mean, you need, that's wow. your second brain. You need to pay attention to that. And, and the one thing that I've learned more than anything is that um, I care a whole lot less what initials or degrees someone has. I really um, judge when I don't use, I don't use the term judge as judgment, but when I'm talking to someone, I take them at face value that um, I have met many people who have an incredibly impressive pedigree that are gigantic asshats. And then I've met (laughs) people that have just, are just like super down to earth, um, maybe they didn't go to college. Maybe they didn't have the ability to do that. Um, or they're just, you know, they just have more simplistic no resources. And, right. And I, there is no judgment on my part. I'm like, I judge you for who you are. Uh, that doesn't impress me. And, and anyone that gets impressed by a bunch of fancy degrees, you're missing the point. I mean, yeah, hundred percent. I love, by the way, how you look to the side before you say profanity words. Because <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> well, and it's funny, I, I'm being respect because I, I can imagine. I mean, I know you have boys. I know even though with earbuds, my kids uh-huh. are downstairs now, um, as are my dogs. And so I was kind of looking to the side to say, okay, I know one's in our dining room. And so I can kind of in the distance see him and the other one's in the kitchen. And sometimes yeah. they enjoy kind of listening to my conversation. So I try to be. Oh and, my and gosh. The, the word asshat in my house is, is a word that I will say in front of them and they know what it means, but <laughs> I remind them they're not allowed to say it. I'm like, sometimes I just have to say something. Um, well, you just have to be normal mom. I mean, right. I, I say those, you know, I say the bad words around them and they just yep. like, mom, yeah. Oh, they yeah. actually correct you and tell you, don't say that. That's really bad. I know. Well, and it's funny. <laughs> I grew up in New Jersey and so using forward expletives, not excessively can be, is something that can be therapeutic. And so, uh, I was telling someone the other day, anytime I, I do a white graphic on Instagram that has a curse word in it, sometimes I'll lose a bunch of followers and I'm just kind of like, eh, you know, it, this is who I am. I mean, occasionally yep. I will curse. Occasionally I will say things that are not appropriate within reason. Um, if you don't like it, then so be it. But yeah. They're not your people's sister. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Just love on them from a distance and let exactly, them go. Exactly. Exactly. 
You said something about the imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. something got downloaded to me and I'm like, oh, that's why life coaching is thriving. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because it's so common amongst yeah. us. Yeah. Super I mean, common. yeah. And I mean, I have had it at very specific times in my life and I look back and it kind of makes me humored because to me, when I start feeling imposter syndrome, it's largely because I really care. I really yeah. care about that situation or I care about making a good impression. And that's when fake it till you make it. You know, you may be feeling that inside, but project confidence on the outside. Um, that's huge um, to, to recognize that people, even people who are middle-aged and experienced and have all these things going on in their lives. I mean, most recently, earlier this year, I, I did a talk and um, I was surrounded by incredibly talented speakers. And so we were practicing the day before the talk and I got up on stage and I completely choked. Oh man. And and my coach knew me and knows what I'm capable of. And so she was like, just start all over. And then I was fine. And I walked off the stage and I said, this is the most talented group of speakers I've ever been around in my entire life. And it was, I started to realize like, I'm now the little fish in the big pond, Yeah, which I was totally cool with, but I, I was like, whoa, like just this feeling of, <gasps> I mean, I need to nail it. Like I yeah. need to bring it and nail it and do it and show them what I'm capable of doing. Um, well, you, but, you start stressing, you know? Yes, I cared. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I so, cared. so let's talk about intermittent fasting because that's yeah. like- my the one that I've been waiting for, and I know a lot of my listeners because I've been yeah. enticing them you know, <laughs> during our for our interview and just mm-hmm. you know um, oiling them up so that they can they want to listen to our episode. But it has been a practice of mine for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I didn't know when you break your fast, which I've seen and watched your. Um, viral video about your your most recent speech or mm-hmm. speaking engagement with TEDx mm-hmm. was that when you break your fast, you, you can't just eat anything. Okay. Right. And right. I think I feel like, um, okay, I've fasted now for a long time. I think I can have a donut. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think the way to think about it is, first of all, my mindset is always moderation, not deprivation. But think about what that choice will make you feel like 30 minutes later. Um, And so, you know, when intermittent fasting kind of fell into my lap, I know you said you've been doing it for about a year. I've been doing it for over two years. When it fell into my nap initially as a Western medicine trained provider, I was like, what? This goes contrary to everything I was taught, everything I bought into. Um, And I was struggling with, you know, just being middle-aged and feeling like I wasn't as lean. I've always been very fit, but just wasn't as lean as I like to be. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And then within a couple months, I was like, wow, um, I think this is the magic bullet, if you will, for not just men, not just women, but a huge population that largely is now morbidly obese um, and overweight. And so then it became kind of a crusade that, you know, I was going to talk about it, but I had no idea I would ever do a TED talk on it. Um, It's kind of a funny story how I got two TED talks kind of close together. Wasn't intentional, um, but the second TED talk I ended up doing, I had to come up with a topic on the fly because they don't allow you to do two talks on the same subject, which makes sense. Right. And so I said to my husband, this was like December. What do I know a lot about? 
it was like intermittent fasting. And so that was the pitch. And so I pitched the idea and then they wanted me to do it focused on women. Um, but what an incredible opportunity to really share something that to me is something I embrace, but also I think we're in a, a stage in, you know, consumerism where everyone's convinced they have to buy a pill or a potion or a powder yes. to make them healthier. And so that makes me absolutely crazy, like completely bananas. And so part of that, um, that talk was really about telling people like, let's get back to basics. You don't have to overthink this. This is free. It's totally flexible. You can do it on vacation. You can um, flip your schedule around if you're going out to I eat or it. going on a date night. Mm -hmm. And that's really, uh, it, those common sense strategies are what I think people are desperate for. Not another diet plan, not another pill or supplement. You know, I interviewed- um, Expensive monthly subscription. Right, right. Well, I was, I was calling it the bucket of junk. We were on with um, a physician who, he's incredible. I'll have to tell you about him. And one of my favorite people we've interviewed on our own podcast, and I brought up the name of the product and he was like, oh, that's the worst. Um, and I said, I'm so glad another healthcare provider says that because I have people who come to me who want to work with me. And then the person down the street peddles this product and then they think it's the easy way out because then they can yeah. still eat junk and they don't have to do anything. But then when they stop buying the crap, then they're right back to where they were. And so- Well, that's was, the dream. That's the dream right. they are- selling is the mm -hmm. easy shortcut way. Right. You need a fat burner. You need, um, you need to, what did they, they call it like a detox product. And I'm like, okay. Um, so, you know, to me, it, it's really a crusade to help people live healthier lives. I just think we need to look beyond the noise and the crap and just get real, um, on so many levels. So I'm delighted that, um, your listeners are excited about this podcast because I'm so passionate about, you know, finding strategies that are real that people can really implement and do the rest of their lives. And in fact, I, I got a lot of angry <laughs> emails from people who are older than 70 because I, I gave some parameters in the talk yes. really just to be smart. Um, and then I had people who were like, I'm 75, I'm 80. I've been intermittent fasting for two years. I've never been healthier. And I'm like, listen, whoa, whoa, whoa. It is not a criticism. I just, as a, I'm a licensed healthcare provider. I don't want to get yeah. sued because I give you information that it's hurts protection. you. It's Correct. protection for and you. And so I said, that's why you should take it to your healthcare provider and talk to them, make sure it's the right strategy. But I thought I was so humored. They're like, hey, talk about limiting beliefs. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, it's not the right strategy for everybody, but clearly you're an outlier. And I think that's totally awesome. Keep up the great yeah. work. That's so cool. I just have a, um, I'm going to give you a topic for your next TEDx talk. I, okay. I love listening and I like extract these amazing ideas when I'm listening to someone talking and we talked about supplements and all these powders and, sh and shakes and all these stuff. And I think you should call your next TEDx talk, the new fast food. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm actually, I'm going to write that down while I'm talking to you cause yeah, my because my mind is yeah, because right now, you know, uh, the fast food industry is actually struggling because mm -hmm. their sales have been going down because of revolutionary people like you and a lot of health and fitness. Do you listen to um, Aubrey Marcus, mm -hmm. you know, and he's healed himself. And like a lot of people are listening to more influencers than they are to their doctors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because obviously it's no longer... I think it's obsolete. And yes, we're still in the old age of the medical technology that, and of course there's pharmaceutical companies that kills you if you come up with something great. 
<laughs> well, and, and I think it's, it's tricky. So, so here's the, the most ironic thing. Um, I got sick earlier this year and was in the hospital yes. for 13 days. And so it's important that I, that I, I say this, there's a, there's a time and a place for Western medicine when you're, when you're sick, like acutely sick, acutely, you know, you have an, an emergency, you need surgery, you um, have a traumatic injury. Um, where I think Western medicine is really failing right now is chronic prevent, chronic and prevention of disease. So chronic management and prevention of disease. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has largely kind of hijacked Western medicine in many ways. And, and, and I say yes. this, and I'll give you an example, you know, until fairly recently, um, pharmaceutical companies weren't allowed to do commercials. Now they are. So the yeah. last few years I practiced, I would have patients come in and they would say, I have X symptom. I want this pill. And I'm like, but we don't really understand why you have that symptom. So maybe we need to look a little deeper before we put a Band-Aid on it. And so the pharmaceutical industry has largely convinced us we need a pill to solve our problems. And in some instances, we do. I mean, legitimately. Obviously, I would have died if I had not had um, the medical care that I have. So I don't want to be critical of that. But I think that we just need to be more thoughtful in the way that we look at health and the way that we look at wellness and the way that we um, you know, have discussions with our healthcare providers. Because I really do believe that the way that many of us were trained, we weren't, we weren't given the tools to be able to think about things from a different perspective. I mean, technically, I was trained as a primary care nurse practitioner. I've never practiced primary care. I wow. always did acute care. But the point of why I'm sharing this is that um, you know, there, there needs to be a new path. And so I, I think that there are a lot of, I, I call them the wellness warriors. I think there are absolutely people out there that are trying to disrupt things in a very positive way. Um, to shine the light on differing opinions and ways to look at things. So um, yeah. I just want to make sure I don't overlook the fact that, you know, I got a lot of questions about why was I in the hospital and um, I'm all fine now, but yeah. um, it's really important for people to realize there's a time and a place, but not necessarily in every place. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. We do need our emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. We need our stitches if we get cut yeah. We need, you know, things removed if it mm -hmm. becomes a problem. And there is definitely that place for, and, and I'm not qualified like you to, to really identify those, but I am just here to acknowledge that there is. But I think that would be come another viral video because you're going to get a lot of rat from <laughs> supplement companies. Oh yeah. Get you a lot of attention. Yeah. Bad, but as, as the Kardashian said, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Right. That is true. <laughs> that is true. And I'll tell you one thing being an introvert. Um, so, so the real reason why I did a Ted talk last year, I desired to do one was I wanted to push myself. I was like, I'm, comfortable talking in front of people, but to commit something to memory and deliver it on cue. And that would be, that would be really good for me to push myself. And so I was trying to explain to someone that that was my second Ted talk was far more intimidating. There was stadium seating and I could see all these people. And, you know, I walked off the stage. I'd only been out of the hospital for you not even, get bigger. Yeah. Not, not even, <laughs> not even four weeks. And so, um, I, I had no idea that it would go viral, but I, but I think the concept, it goes back to the same thing. I think people are hungry, no pun intended, are hungry for good information. They mm -hmm. want to use strategies that don't cost them anything or don't cost them very much. Um, and, and they have a strong desire to improve their health. I don't think anyone wants to sit back and be miserable and 
you know, obese mm -hmm. and unhappy. I think most people have a desire to improve their lifestyles and this is the way they can do it in the comfort of their own home. Yeah. And um, going back as a parent, like, I don't think anybody wants not to hang out and play with their kids. Exactly. I want to have the kid. Yeah. And that's a powerful impetus. You know, it's interesting on, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but um, Twitter has a really, I love Twitter. I think Twitter's awesome. And so there's a lot of, you know, very pro intermittent fasting people. And every once in a while, a troll will show up and yes. say, what about these mini meals? And you start to realize like very quickly, they're a troll. They're just trying to like, you know, create conflict and drama. And I now I've just learned to kind of tune it out. But I always find it interesting that you know, that old dogma is no longer prevailing. I think people are starting to question it, um, question it in a very positive way. And so, um, you know, that's all good. You know, I, I always say, I, the way that my training um, when I was at Hopkins was, you know, the Hopkins nurse, you know, there's this concept of what that represents. And so I was talking to someone who works in the alumni office very recently. And she said, the one thing I love about Hopkins nurses is that they never they never, they're always steadfast in their belief that there could be another way to look at things. You know, uh -huh. we're not, we're not sheep. No. And so I'm not a sheep and I don't want anyone who's listening to ever be a sheep. I want you to question things. I used to have my patients question things and I used to be happy. I was like, listen, I want to know there's a brain in there and that you're asking me questions. That's a good thing. I'm not offended. Even my own clients ask me questions. I'm like, I want you to ask me questions. It's important to me that you understand the decisions that we are making collectively together. Uh, I don't want to just tell you what to do. I don't want it to yes. be that kind of dynamic. Uh, and so I think people are kind of waking up to new opportunities to look at things. Talk about the idea of breakfasts is the the most important meal of the day being obsolete. Um, yeah. Because I, I've always questioned, so mm -hmm. you, you talk about like question. I've always questioned a lot of the things that we are told. So for a very long time, and I, I'm this, I've always been this kid that questioned everything. And I get in trouble as a kid a lot because I did a lot of those. Mm -hmm. But when I heard, and, I, and now that I have a, a lot of voice, mm -hmm. then I question even more things. And so not long ago, probably just within the, the last 10 years, I started questioning why is breakfast the most important meal of the day mm -hmm. for a very long time until I found my answer, but maybe my answer is not the same as yours. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it is if you go back evolutionary wise, where bodies really aren't designed to be eating all day long, it stimulates a, a hormone called insulin. More insulin that's secreted, the more likely you are to retain, mm -hmm. you know, retain fat uh, and gain weight. So traditionally, when people get up in the morning, I mean, drinking water, keeping yourself hydrated is really all that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I would really advocate that people give themselves more, more digestive rest. What does that mean? If you eat dinner at six o'clock at night and you don't eat again until 10 o'clock in the morning, your body has had 16 hours to spend time digesting your food, assimilating nutrients, packaging up things it doesn't need. Whereas if you eat at six o'clock and eight o'clock and 10 o'clock and you get up at six o'clock again, your body continues to secrete all this extra excuse me, I almost said estrogen, insulin. And so insulin, what, what it does is it, it's trying to move sugar that's in the bloodstream into the cells, but the more insulin that's secreted, the more likely you are to continue with this kind of haphazard um, issue with weight gain. So mm. you know, when I look at breakfast, I always say, 
unless you're a child, unless you're somebody who's got blood sugar issues or you're sick. Um, I, I don't really think it's necessary. And, and I find, you know, intrinsically, you might get hungry maybe when you're at 14 hours, 13 hours. Um, but oftentimes it's just you're thirsty. Your body gets dehydrated yes. after you have spent a night sleeping. And so listening to our bodies, we've gotten conditioned to listen to guidelines about eating three meals a day and many meals when we don't, we're not even hungry. How many mm -hmm. times have you, have you grabbed a snack to take with you because you're running errands and you eat it and you're not even hungry? And so you know, the detriment to your body is profound cumulatively. And especially as with aging, when we need less calories, we have less muscle mass, we're not burning as many calories. I always use the perfect example of, I had a lot of patients that would eat like they were when they were 18 years old, which as you know, with boys, you know, boys like eat ridiculous amounts of food. Oh, the whole fridge. Yeah. I just went grocery Stop. shopping this morning. Yep. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, you know, people eat like when they were 18 years old, but they're eating that way when they're 50. And then they're wondering why they've gained weight. And then they're wondering why they need blood pressure medicine. And they're wondering why they're, you know, they're pre-diabetic. And so if you can clear that up by removing one meal a day, which is generally breakfast, mm -hmm. break your fast a little early, eat your first meal at 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really think it's critical that we induce more digestive rest. What I find is most people feel so good because their insulin levels are low. So the mental clarity piece is heightened that they don't want to go back to eating breakfast. Yes, the focus, the focus that I've had and the time savings that I get. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because you don't have to worry about making another meal. Like to me, oh it's so gosh. easy. Especially yeah. when I, you know, I don't just eat. When I used to eat breakfast, I don't just eat quick breakfast. I have to mm -hmm. get up an extra hour to make, you know, to be on time and make my breakfast. Cause I, I eat a full, I used to eat a full, nice, healthy meal for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And that takes, you know, when you, everything healthy, everything done right takes a, right. a long time. Yep. And so I am living so happily with intermittent fasting. So my schedule, uh, before I, I go into the scheduling, because you spoke about it and what you spoke about on your TEDx, mm -hmm. is what I do in my, in my own life. But you said something that caught my attention when you said like, you got to give the body to pack the things that it doesn't want. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, that's like an aha moment because mm -hmm. I didn't know the body was that talented to do, yeah. to pack the unwanted things on its own. Yeah. So tell me a little bit deeper about what that. Yeah. Like. So, you know, so typically, I mean, the, the amount of time from when you eat to when you have a bowel movement should be 18 to 24 hours. Okay. So, you know, that's something to think about, to consider if things are moving too fast or too slow, and it's not normal to be constipated. I don't care what anyone says. We are supposed to have a bowel movement at least once or twice a day. Um, but if you give your body time to focus on breaking the food down, absorbing the nutrients it needs, packaging up the waste, whether that's waste you're going to excrete by ur with urine or defecation, that's really critical. People don't, we've gotten so far, we're so uncomfortable talking about normal biologic processes in our right. bodies. You know, people, they think about food when they put it in their mouth and they maybe think about food when they poop, but that's probably as much as they think about food. We've gotten so disconnected from how our body feels when we eat. It's not normal to want to fall asleep after a meal. It is not normal to be bloated. It is not normal to have diarrhea. It is not normal to be constipated. Mm -hmm. So I invite everyone is listening to really think mindfully when they're eating, what makes your body feel good? What makes your body feel crappy? Like for mm -hmm. me personally, 
I can't drink much. Not that I was ever much of a drinker. Let me preface that. I have, I was never much of a drinker, but I'm at a point in my life that if I have two glasses of wine or more than one martini, my blood sugar goes into a tailspin and I will want to go take a nap. Now you can imagine in a social setting, that's not ideal for the same reason that carbohydrates are critical. We need carbohydrates. I believe we need carbohydrates. I know there are people who you know, eschew carbohydrates and think they're the devil, but it's all about quality. Mm-hmm. Glycemic berries, sweet potato, um, you know, things like root vegetables are certainly superior than you know, refined sugars and candy yes. and cooks, uh, cookies and, and cake and things like that. So especially for women, as we become perimenopausal, you know, five to seven years preceding menopause and ladies, if you're in your late thirties, you're already there. Um, it's really, really critical. <laughs> I'm that there. We, I know, I know it's kind I'm of a bummer. At night. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the point being that it's really important that we're mindful of how we eat, how we put our meals together, how we feel when we're eating our food and whether or not our digestive system is working optimally. So when I talk about packaging, it's really digesting, absorbing and excreting things our body doesn't need, but we want to put our body in a state where it is as relaxed as possible. And here's another thing that people don't think about. We live in these super stressed, harried existences where we're go, 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 go from the time our our feet hit the floor to the time we go to bed. If you are stressed, you cannot digest your food. That's why I encourage wow. clients, people I know, get off your tablet, stop watching TV, stop looking at your iPhone, your iWatch, don't argue with your spouse, don't sit in front of your computer while you're eating. Your mm. body, you know, digestion starts in your brain all the way up here. So if your brain is not engaged on that, on that, so you have two, you know, kind of halves to the, your central nervous system. There's a sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic is I'm being chased by a, a rabid animal. Parasympathetic is I'm relaxed, I'm chill, I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm ready to eat. If you're not in, tapped into that rest and repose start of your brain, your body's not assimilating food and, and able wow. to package it as properly. And here's the other piece. For all those people who are constipated, of which are there, I'm sure there are many that are listening, if you're not relaxed, you can't poop. I mean, it yes. is that simple. Um, wow. So anyway, just, you have to be relaxed when you're eating. That's, that's a key takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to say something about you said on people think about food when they shove the food in their mouth Mm -hmm. and then think about food when they poop, nothing in between. And one of the things that I think that a lot of, a lot of things that is lacking from the consumer's perspective is education Mm -hmm. of where does the food go from shoving it into your mouth? How does it, even though some of us have gone through education and, and, and all of that, but Mm -hmm. when we're not in the profession that you are in, I think that we tend to um, forget about those dynamics of what happens to our food inside our body and how the stomach processes everything in our digestive system. So I think that, um, what's lacking is the educational piece because in our medical profession, we don't, we don't educate our consumers enough about these things. That's why I'm so happy to meet people like yourself who are so revolutionary when it comes to really educating people. Cause when you said uh, packing the things we don't need, like for me, that's, that is so English for me. Yeah. You know, I understand it fully, but I didn't know the body actually did that. Yeah. Because, because in the medical world, we explain it in the medical terminology, mm-hmm. but well, you explain I, it in English. Well, and I think, um, 
So here, here's two takeaways. If you can't explain a, co a broad concept simply, you don't understand it well enough, or you're so socially retarded, you don't recognize your audience. So if I'm talking <laughs> to a physician, I'm going to speak differently than I am to anyone else or another healthcare provider, just by virtue of the fact, it's like, a, it's like learning a new language, you know, when you start working in medicine. When I was working with patients and even with my clients, I take complicated concepts and break them down because I want you to understand. I want you to walk away and say, that makes sense to me. Um, you know, when I, when I, for example, when I was, when I was kind of drafting out my second TED talk, I kept saying, it's too simple. I'm making it too simple. And my husband's like, that's the point. You need to make it simple because people are struggling to get good information. They can't get good information or it's explained at a level that makes no sense to them. Yes. They can't implement it. So keep it simple. So that whole concept, keep it simple, stupid. I don't like the word stupid, but keep it simple, silly um, is, you know, kind of a guiding principle because now you're going to walk away and later you're going to say to yourself, wow, you know, you know, I need to package up all the things my body doesn't need. It makes sense why I want to give my body a rest. It makes sense yeah. why I don't want to like be eating 15 mini meals throughout the day. Um, you know, it makes it a whole lot easier to implement changes when you kind of go, okay, that makes sense. Like intellectually, conceptually, that makes sense to me. For the same reason, if you were talking to me like you would talk to a banking person, I'd probably go right over my head because that's not my skill set. Um, <laughs> Somehow one of my kids must have left a door open because there's this fly kind of buzzing around. I'm like, oh, oh it's okay. So yeah. And, and so the educational piece in between so that the consumers that somebody, you know, like you said, keep it simple. So someone with a fifth grade mm -hmm. education can understand it. Like if a yeah. fifth grader can't understand it, I've always thought in my head, if they can't understand it, then I'm not explaining it good enough. Correct. Or and I simple think enough. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't fully understand concepts they're trying to talk about. I'm not, I'm not referring to anyone in particular. Um, I just always was of the belief that if I can't explain it really well, I don't understand it enough. And so I need yeah. to go back and go back to the drawing board. Um, I agree. And, and what's interesting to me is there's a lot of misinformation about intermittent fasting that's out there because I get questions all the time and, and I'll say, well, so-and-so says you can have something under 50 calories. And I said, well, let's think about it this way. If you're fasting, what does that mean? It means the absence of food. So if you're eating something Zero. that's under 50 <laughs> calories, you are still eating food. Therefore, you're evoking an insulin response. I said, maybe that person's trying to give you a tip. Maybe you're struggling to do this, but it really means no food. No. Well, food. the problem is like someone like me who's done it for 12 months think we're an expert. Mm -hmm. And so people should really just practice it for themselves and not give wrong advice to people right. and just direct them to professionals like yourself. So with that said, how can someone work with Cynthia? And yeah. I know you have a lot of freebies in your website, like the FAQs, which I've read. Um, I've read your, um, one of my takeaways in your FAQs is that when you break your fasting, you break it with some healthy, you know, good fats, like avocados and mm -hmm and really good things so that your body's not in a shock because it's right. been going on without food. And I, and I eat within the eight hour period, 12 to eight, and then I fast the rest of the day for myself. Um, how, you know, after the free um, items and value that you give mm -hmm. out to the world, what else can you do for people? And if people wanna work with you, can they work with you even though they're on another side of the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do work with people outside the United States, but I have one-on-one -on -one programs 
I have group programs we're kind of enrolling right now for something called Find Your Inner Goddess. It's a three-week program. It's actually one of my favorite programs to teach because it's all about real-world strategies. It's done in a private Facebook group. Um, I also have a monthly membership site um, that's done through Facebook as well, where we change topics and have a free, we have like a call every month together and the women in that group love it. So there's lots of ways to connect with me. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm super active on Twitter. That has become my new favorite place to be um, just because it's quick. Everything is quick. Instagram. Yeah. And I, I like yet, Instagram too. I but. have yet to figure Twitter out. I'm, I'm just going to have to like start doing it because yeah. without doing it, like you shut down and it's like, ah, I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to focus here. There's really no learning, you know? It is. Um, it's interesting because at this time last year, I think I had 300 followers. And so I really didn't understand because each, as you know, each social media platform strategy is different. Correct. It took me a while to figure out what would stick. And now I'm in a good position where I have a good group of people that I follow and they, and it's, it's, I just enjoy it because there's a lot of witty banter. It's just, it's fast and it's smart. Um, but if you decide to get an account, let me know. Cause we'll definitely, I'll definitely have to catch you up to speed, but I enjoy Twitter, uh, largely because it's, I mean, it just moves quickly. It really yeah. does. And there's do, just a lot of interesting people. Yeah. I do have an account cause I, I love following different people with, like mm -hmm. you said, the witty banter mm -hmm. and the, and the witty, um, comments that people because you can only go so far right character wise so yep. I, i'm just not as engaged as i am in my instagram and and my facebook so i'll i'll have to figure it out so go ahead and tell us um well you already said the website and the group right well so if you so the best place to start is my website www.chtwellness.com um, and you can send me an inquiry over my website. Um, my, my VA will pick it up and we'll decide, you know, what, what's the best avenue. There's a lot of free content on there. You know, I've got a pretty active, we blog every week, um, but lots of good information. And then there are links to my Ted talks. I've done two. Um, most recent one is intermittent fasting. And then we also have like a free community group on Facebook. It's called CHT wellness community. That's totally free. Um, it's a really nice group of, uh, there are men and women in there, but super supportive. I don't allow for any drama. In fact, I blocked someone the other day who kept putting up like their business info. And I was like, that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, community space where people can talk about, you know, their health concerns and questions they have. It's not about advertising for your services. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to connect with me and just certainly reach out if you have any questions. Yeah, that's so cool. We'll add all that on the notes, on the podcast notes. What is your message to your kids, your boys, if they were listening? And I know that they can get a hold of this as well, right? Because yes. they're, yes. they're growing up and they're so savvy. Our, our kids are so savvy with it's social media. technology. I know, I know. What would I say to them? Um, you know, my hope for them is that they will be inspired to live the life of their dreams, to not be hampered. You know, if I had listen to the naysayers, I would not have taken a leap of faith and become an entrepreneur. And I think they're actually um, really proud of what I'm creating. I never thought of myself as a creative person. So I hope for them, it inspires them to live a life of, of their dreams and to dream big. I mean, why dream small, dream big? You never know. You yes. just never know. Um, and you know, one last thing to mention is that when I was so sick in the hospital, the two things I thought about were obviously getting home to my boys, but also feeling a tremendous desire to continue my work, you know, helping to inspire others. So I would hope my boys walk away with um, 
you know, a profound sense of themselves. You know, my, my youngest came with me to my last TED talk. And so he thought that was really cool, but dream big, you know, the, the world is truly your oyster. You have the opportunity to create it into whatever you want it to be. Just don't limit yourself. Don't, don't possess or embrace limiting beliefs. Um, recognize that you have, you know, true potential. That's awesome. There is no such thing as limitations. Mm -hmm. There is all created in our heads, right? Yeah. Before I last, um, or ask my last quick question, um, I want to ask you, what do you think you're here for in this world? Oh, it's a good question. Someone asked me that the other day. Um, other than being Jack and Liam's mom, I am meant to build, and I, I use the term empire. I don't, I don't say this to be disruptive, but I just think I am meant to be here to help inspire a generation of women to live their best lives. I mean, intrinsically, I believe that. Empirically, I believe that. Mm -hmm. that there's no one that's doing exactly what I'm doing right now. And that mm -hmm. I'm really here to help provide inspiration, education, um, and, you know, knocking down walls, you know, not in a way that I'm not embracing my femininity or loving, you know, being a woman, but just acknowledging that this generation is definitely looking to, that was my dog. Um, definitely looking, I don't know what is with this fly, um, definitely looking to, um, you know, just live their best lives, not settle, not feel like because, you know, age defines them that they are just going to continue being badasses and being incredible mothers and friends and lovers and confidants and all those things. And that, you know, there need not be the limitations that I think so many of us embraced for so many years. Like once you get north of this age, you can't possibly do this, this, and this. And I just don't believe in any of that anymore. So that's awesome. Last question. What is Cynthia Thorlow's? Did I say that right? Yeah. Definition of the word mother hustler. Ooh. Well, of course you have to be a badass, but I think it's all about having the ability to like, and I use the term multitask, not in a bad way, but to, to the ability to have 15 things up in the air and look calm, cool, and collected, even though under the surface, you are completely freaking out. But I yes. think it's, you know, that gentle way that we live our lives, trying to honor our commitments, um, not only to our families, but to ourselves, to our businesses, and do it in a way that is full of integrity, full of honesty, um, and helping to inspire another generation of women that you can have it all together. It's not a farce. Yes. Thank you for that. I appreciate you so much. And thank I you. am so enjoying this conversation. I literally can go for another hour. <laughs> we, I love this it. is probably going to be the longest episode I'll ever have, but it's going to be the most meatiest, right? Because oh. it's so important. So Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. your knowledge about intermittent fasting We'll definitely have to have you back maybe after your third um, TED talk when you talk yeah. about the new fast food. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I had to turn one down. I had, um, I was a finalist for another one, like a TED med. And I had to, I was like, I, I was so overwhelmed with the viral nature of the last talk that I, I was like, I just energetically, I just can't think of another idea. That was what I honestly, I was like, I can't yeah. think of anything else. Can't do it. But yeah, I'd love to have, love to come back. Thank you, sister. Thank you so much.
All right, sisters, thank you so much for listening and always supporting the Being Mother Hustler podcast every single episode, every single week. I know most of you take screenshots of these episodes and share it all over your social media outlet. And for some of you that's left us a five-star review, from the bottom of my heart, I'm so super grateful for you. Make sure you follow us on Spotify and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And it would mean the world to the entire Mother Hustler Nation community if you wrote us a five-star review. Because I'm telling you, this is not about me. This is not about you. It's about all of us in the community inspiring each other, learning from each other, and not allowing each other to make any excuses to chase our dreams. I swear I read those reviews and it fuels me to my core, makes me cry for great reasons, so I so look forward to reading those reviews. As always, sisters, don't forget to give, serve, live, and love. Have a mother-husband day.